Hi, folks. Before we start this week's episode, I wanted to ask for your support for Design Museum Everywhere. Just like this podcast, so much of what Design Museum Everywhere puts out in the world is free and accessible to everyone. We're all about bringing design impact everywhere to everyone. Whether it's our virtual events, like our recent Design Museum Live on data visualization and COVID-19, or our We Design online exhibition featuring designers of color across every design field, or the hundreds of articles on design on our website, like one of my favorites, Design Thinking for Rocket Scientists. There's just so much design museum content to enjoy. It's all made possible by people like you whose financial support drives our ability to bring the transformative power of design everywhere. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider making a year-end gift to support us. Your donation is tax-deductible and means a lot to us. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on the link at the top of the page. And thanks. And now onto the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from Design Museum Everywhere for Thursday, November 12th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of the Design Museum. Today, we'll be discussing design and the importance of outdoor play. Even during the COVID times of social distancing and mask wearing and hand sanitizer, play is fundamentally important to every human, not just kids. But kids especially need play in their lives. I know a thing or two about it. In 2017, I co-wrote a book on play with my former colleague, Amanda Hawkins. It's aptly called Design and Play, and it features over 40 extraordinary playscapes from around the world, along with thought leadership essays from some amazing play experts. I wrote that book before I had kids. Now I have two, and I cannot stop thinking about their need to play during this pandemic. A lot of playgrounds are closed, even if they aren't. Would we go there? We haven't really been. Is it time? I don't know. But I do think it's a good time to analyze the state of play and think about the future of play once COVID is behind us. We have two awesome play experts on the show today to chat about this. Our guest co-host, you'll recognize from a past Design is Everywhere episode, Sherry Ruan will join us again. She is Vice President and Landscape Architecture Practice Leader at Weston and Sampson a design and engineering firm committed to improving the natural and built environment. And then Sherry and I will interview a friend of ours, Michael Laris. Michael is the VP of Global Innovation at PlayPower, the world's largest playground and recreational equipment manufacturer. And as always, we'll share our weekly dose of good design. Before we kick off our conversation, some news from the Design Museum. We recently posted our latest Design Together activity. Design Together is our collection of design education activities for all ages and classrooms. We know all of you parents and guardians and teachers are out there looking for activities and lessons, so we have you covered. The latest Design Together activity is connected to our We Design exhibition, which explores careers in creative industries and features designers of many backgrounds. Learners will be able to identify the role of a designer and understand the ways in which the design process is already integrated into their own methods of problem solving. It's just innate. Check it out on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org. Scroll down a bit and you'll see Design Together. Also, be sure to get your tickets for our Workplace Innovation Summit happening online over the course of five days, December 7th through 11th. We have keynote presentations, interactive workshops, and many ways to connect and network, even remotely. And we're covering a lot of different topics related to our new normal in and outside the traditional workplace. So be sure to grab your tickets on designmuseumeverywhere.org. Okay, so pre-pandemic, we were traveling an exhibition around the U.S. called Extraordinary Playscapes, which features statistics on the importance of play and childhood development, 
and the design process and stories behind some amazing outdoor play environments from around the world. It is a super fun exhibition. You can even play in this exhibition. When I first read this article in The Atlantic, The Overprotected Kid, gosh, I, th I think that was 2014, I was shocked into action. So in her piece, it was written by Hannah Rosen, uh, and I'll just quote her here. So in, in the piece, she says, a preoccupation with safety has stripped childhood of independence, risk-taking, and discovery without making it safer. I read that and I instantly remembered my own childhood running around our neighborhood with my friends, completely unsupervised, coming up with our own adventures, and yeah, getting into some trouble and definitely sometimes getting hurt. It happened. Uh, but those experiences were incredibly important to my upbringing and who I am today. I can't even imagine who I'd be if that wasn't part of my childhood. Sadly, we're seeing that kids have less unsupervised play at this time, less unstructured playtime, and playgrounds are a lot less risky. And that's even if you have a playground near you. There are many what we call play deserts throughout the U.S. And plus now we have COVID too, so there's just so many barriers to play. To talk more about design and play, I'd like to welcome today's guest co-host back to the show for her second episode. She's back. Sherry Ruan is Vice President and Landscape Architecture Practice Leader at Weston & Sampson. She has 20 years of multidisciplinary experience, including special expertise with socially and politically complex site design projects and facilitating public participation. And she cares deeply about outdoor play. She was recently elevated to the American Society of Landscape Architects Council of Fellows for her exceptional contribution to the landscape architecture profession. Very well deserved. Sherry, welcome back to Design is Everywhere. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. It's great to have you with us again. So we work together to make extraordinary playscapes happen. I know you have a amazing passion for outdoor play. Can you share where that passion comes from? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I feel like when you think about play, I mean, truly great moments of play. Is there anything better? You know, it's like the occupation of childhood. It's, it's literally, as a kid, it's your job to play. That's what you're supposed to do. It's how most learning occurs. It's where you figure out risk and social and emotional development in a way that is age appropriate and supported by, you know, as you move through your various evolution um, and age ranges, play changes. And it's such a magical opportunity, both individual and group based. So I feel mm -hmm. like there's something so remarkable about its universal language about how when you see kids and even adults, even though we're less prone to play, which <laughs> is quite sad, yes. <laughs> but play is often this unifier where you, you need not even speak each other's language, but you know how to play together. And I think mm -hmm. that that for me gives me great hope and also is something that's super exciting about what the landscape can offer communities yeah. is this opportunity. Yeah, it's a unifier, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you just it is magical when you see, I'll say, a group of kids playing. You're like, they're playing, they're having a great time, they're learning, they're interacting. It's it's magical. It's so true. Yeah. I feel like I remember when my I have kids, 15-year-old boy and an almost 13-year-old girl, but back when they spoke with me and would be seen with me in public places, we used to go to parks together and they <laughs> would encounter other kids of their age. And I remember one day it was a park in Somerville and it was about this time of year. So there were leaves on the ground and with kids they didn't even know who did not 
speak English and my kids did not speak Portuguese, they created this game of throwing up the leaves and running underneath them. And <laughs> it was amazing. And you just yeah. think to yourself, what else is there? But yeah this amazing magic of play. Yeah, I love it. So that exhibition, Extraordinary Playscapes, launched in 2016, which, oh boy, I can't. <laughs> Time really just flies. feels really fast. And man, the world has changed since then. So I wonder if you can transport yourself back to when we did the exhibition mm. and now, and I'd love to just hear from you you know, the way you see it, the state of play then and how play has changed in those, you know, four or five years. Sure. So I think four or five years ago, we were really learning to take inclusion seriously in play and design and integrate it into every single aspect of every single project in a way that we hadn't previously. And it's not that we didn't want to, but truly at that point, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so Four or five years ago, I think everybody was getting really good at it and we were really embracing it because now we'd learned what it meant and we'd seen examples and we'd tried it and we had, you know, some small failures that we then recovered from and learned more. And now it's such a critical piece of our public realm. You wouldn't consider doing a project or designing a part of the outdoor built environment without thinking through inclusion. And that, of course, has many different meanings for many different people, but truly the crux of it is everyone feels welcome and can engage in a way that's intuitive and does not need to be circuitous or some other way because you're not capable of navigating it the way everyone else is. So I think that's something that certainly I've seen over the past four or five years. And while COVID has certainly changed, I think the operation and management of play spaces, how kids play remains the same. It's, it's <laughs> sort of a reassuring consistency between pre and post COVID times. I think that we know a lot more about, we're learning a lot more about the virus and we realize that it's less about surface contact and more about airborne spreading. So being outdoors is actually the best possible way to socialize just because it eliminates the risk of concentration. I've watched kids in playgrounds. Many of them are now masked and, <laughs> you know, moms are trying to keep a little bit of distance between them and their friends. But the truth of it is, even with those limitations, you can still make an amazing game as a kid. And so kids are still out there running and jumping and swinging and doing all the things that kids do. We as adults certainly have a lot more in our mind about what the potential risks are, where in the kid's mind, their first thought is, I just want to have fun. I want to mm -hmm. make this fun in some way. And then the rest falls in behind it. And I feel yeah. like play is a vehicle that allows that freedom of expression and community in a way that holds us back, I think, as adults. So as a landscape architect, how do you think about and approach designing outdoor play environments. I know oftentimes, and we talked about this in first episode we did together, you're doing a master plan of, you know, a potential huge park or community. I wonder if we could zoom in on a play mm -hmm. portion and how you approach that part of the design. I do think there is a consistent theme even between the larger master plan and the smaller play space. And that is really that it's critical to enroll the community in the conversation and to understand the context of the neighborhood. You know, it may not directly inform every single design move that's made or every single feature that's included, but absolutely each design in 
as far as Weston and Sampson's design studio is concerned, we believe they have to be inherently grounded in their own specific community and that no design could be taken out of Cambridge and put Mm. in Boston or taken out of Plano, Texas and put in Somerville. It's just not, it wouldn't work, right? It wouldn't work in an authentic way that's integrated into the community. And so what we really want to do is listen and hear what's happening in the community at that time. Now, again, not everything that's said translates to a design move like, I want to high dive. All right, well, we better put in a pool. Let's do it. That's great. (laughs) Check off that box. No, it's much more about taking it all in and then as design professionals synthesizing what are the major themes and what is needed. So how it happens can vary from place to place. Sometimes like at Menino Park, it was, there's a hospital right next door. Mm -hmm. And so engaging with physical and occupational therapists at Spalding Rehab was a huge part of what made this an important space for play. And us learning about all the various neurological and physical challenges that people of all ages were overcoming. Mm -hmm. So this playground became a place for every single person at the hospital. Sure, kids were more apt to go on the merry-go-round and go as Mm -hmm. fast as they could, and adults (laughs) were more apt to use the pull-up bar, but certainly they were all using this space together. And I think that is part of what informs these designs and what makes them great. And then once you get through that initial listening and really hearing what's happening in the community or what people's concerns are, then we really try to have an intuitive sequence of gross and fine motor skill, Mm. um, exploratory play, younger kids, older kids. We love using the site and the earthwork and natural features in the design of these places. So it's not just like Dorothy's house fell out of the sky (laughs) and you've got this play equipment that landed there and it doesn't make any sense. If you ever see people that advocate for all natural play, like streams and the woods, which are also incredibly important, they'll show you the worst example of a playground, which is, of (laughs) course, you know, four, you know, a square of timber piles filled with wood chips and like the red, white and blue. Yeah, swing set. Swing set. Right. And that's it. And they're like, this is what people consider play. We're all in agreement that that's awful. But I'd offer that in addition to the wild outdoors, which not everyone has access to, we have to be able to really creatively integrate wood and rocks and dirt and trees and water into these play spaces so that there is more of a melding of the pre-designed, prefabricated things and the site. And so that's where the magic happens is when those two things can come together and feel pretty seamless. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love uh, the Menino playground and the story, everything you all did with the hospital, including the fact that patients can just look out and see happiness, right? Right. Like they can see (laughs) kids playing and what an impact that has on their care and on their recovery. I mean, that that's not to be uh, we we shouldn't forget that. That's That's right. When it was being built, actually, there were some kids on the window side overlooking the construction. And so every day they were just watching it get closer and closer (laughs) and closer to being built. And the contractor who was amazing, McKay Construction, they invited some of these kids into the playground to be the first kids on the (laughs) merry-go-round, on the slide, on the swing. And some of the parents and caregivers that were there was like, that's the first time I've seen them smile since they've been at this hospital. And like, those are life-changing moments of hope 
So I'm curious if you another example of like a favorite playground that's like has those local elements that you could share. We recently finished a playground, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, um, speaking of time flying, mm. in Somerville, which has a very low percentage of open space. It's only got four and a half percent open space, four square miles, 80,000 people. It's dense. Right. And there was a six acre parcel, which is gigantic in a community like Somerville, that had um, active recreation, sports fields. It was right next to a school. Um, so we really wanted to cram as much as we could into this six acre space without it feeling overdone. Mm -hmm. And this was a place, Somerville is a very uh, progressive community. Lots of different folks live here. But what we we really, we realized at the time was um, 57 languages were spoken at this school wow. and kids from all over the world. This was the one school that focused on English as a second language. And so it was an incredibly diverse place. Mm. And the schoolyard was a lot of people's third place. It wasn't home. It wasn't work. It was where they went in between. And it was a really important part of their day to day. And something we learned was one of the after school programs is parkour. And so we engaged parkour generations and one of the local guys um, to help us design a parkour course, awesome. which is just really bars and concrete, but amazing opportunity for speaking of upper body strength and moving as an adult. That was a huge win. And then small skate slash BMX, you know, park essentially in the side plus adult exercise equipment and an off-leash recreation area and really unique play opportunities and sports fields and stormwater reclamation and so this was an opportunity where we were able to take every layer of the site and of the community and weave it into this place so there's truly something for everyone people are don't understand how playground comes to be Right? right. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's just like the city waves like a magic wand. Right. And I'm like, that's actually not how it happens. So from your experience, because I'm mm. imagining someone's listening, being like, yes, we need a playground. Like, what would your advice be to that person? Well, um, aside from obviously hiring a landscape architect, <laughs> I, feel, I, feel like, um, I feel like one of the biggest things that we see in communities right now is you need momentum, right? Mm -hmm. You need a collective that a loud, organized, articulate voice that is speaking to the power of that community. Yes. In Massachusetts in particular, we have the Community Preservation Act, which is actually a very small tax that's been enacted in many communities. And that goes towards historic preservation, affordable housing, and parks and open space. And so it is a revenue stream that does not compete with schools and police stations gotcha. and fire stations. And one thing I always note is that parks, unlike electricity, water, and sewer, don't have ratepayers. You know, they don't have a predictable and reliable income source that continues to pay for capital improvement and maintenance. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist. So I'm not saying that we should charge people to go to parks, but I am saying that we should be looking to similar reliable mm -hmm. revenue sources like taxes on Airbnb or yeah, yeah. whatever. Any of these new disruptive technologies that yeah. are entering into society, that's an opportunity mm -hmm. to leverage this newfound revenue and dedicate it to um, open space because we often find 
you know, somebody says, wow, I really want a playground in this park. Actually, Roslindale, Massachusetts has an incredibly well-organized group of parents, and they identified that Roslindale in Boston was a play desert. There were Mm -hmm. hardly any playgrounds. And they were really, really organized and made a very strategic, concerted effort and advocated and got playgrounds into the capital spending plan and then were there as a part of the community process and really saw it through in a way that has completely changed the landscape. Now, you have to do this beyond your own interest because it took a mm-hmm. long time. And during right. that time, these your people's kids, kids <laughs> are like were two and now they're nine. Yeah. But for the greater good, right? These mm-hmm. are the changes that, that improve our built environment. I love it. Yeah, folks, you heard it. Get loud collective (laughs) those collective voices can make change and we clearly all need play thank you sherry i really appreciate you being with us again and love your passion uh, around play thank you listeners be sure to check out sherry and her team's work at weston and sampson they're involved in pretty much everything in the built environment including play including parks visit their website westonandsampson.com and sherry stick around and we'll bring our old pal michael laris from play power into the conversation Join us December 7th through 11th for our fifth annual Workplace Innovation Summit, an immersive five-day virtual event experience focused on the future of how and where we work. At the Workplace Innovation Summit, you'll learn directly from the experts and become an expert yourself by engaging in meaningful conversations to develop your during and post-COVID workplace strategy. Topics include augmenting existing spaces, wellness and workplace culture, equity in the workplace, collaborative technology, and more. You'll experience keynote presentations, interactive workshops, and virtual networking opportunities. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org to learn more. Let's connect, reflect, reform, and shape what happens next in the workplace at the 2020 Workplace Innovation Summit. Attend virtually from anywhere in the world December 7th through 11th. Get your tickets today at designmuseumeverywhere.org. We're back and we're joined by our special guest. Michael Laris is the VP of Global Innovation at Play Power, the world's largest playground and recreational equipment manufacturer. Michael leads the design work there. He was originally an architect in California, but was converted into an architect of play, which I want to hear more about. His dedication in the field of play has been rewarded by several international design awards, the opportunity to collaborate with a host of students, universities, and companies, and uh, He's enjoyed being part of reinventing the play industry through product innovation. Similarly to Sherry, Michael and his team were an important part of the Design Museum's Extraordinary Playscape exhibition. So, Michael, it's great to see you and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to see you and to hear you. To start, I'm curious, what converted you from being an architect into, as you as you say, an architect of play and focused on you know outdoor play? Unemployment. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it every time. Well, uh, so just quickly, my story was uh, I took a year abroad as a student of architecture in Denmark, and and that's where I met my first wife. We were doing architecture in California, moved out to Denmark, and boy, trying everything I could, I, I couldn't really assimilate into the architectural field there. And then I was very fortunate to, to join a playground company that mm. was really very design-based and... Turned out, you know, my background and and just fit well with kids and play and doing architecture for for kids. What part of your work 
now that you're in this really brings you the most joy? You know, I think of it as, you know, movement in in time and space, right? So what's really great about doing playgrounds is it's both kind of architecture, but it's space and it's big movements through that and flowing through that. Maybe a little bit like how we think of things in, in the world of landscape architecture and flow and movement and elements and all that kind of stuff. So my favorite part, it's the kids. It's it's the play tests. So mm-hmm. we have play tests and it's seeing it's seeing their responses and their and hearing their comments. That's always the best day. Yeah. Do you get to yeah. incorporate that feedback into uh, the designs? Yes. Well, right now you 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 know we are all in a different world right yeah. now, and so play <laughs> tests are happening, but quite differently. Um, they need to happen, you know, in sort of like family groups that are already mm. together and things like that. But usually, what would happen is we'd have we'd make a mock up. We call it a functional model because it's uh, it's not a prototype, but it's really to study the function because obviously you don't want to can keep going on anything if it's not going to function. So mm-hmm. what we usually do is bring in different groups and depending on their age and things, I mean, they they have all kinds of comments. Sometimes if they're a little older, they get Sharpies or whatever, and they go <laughs> right on things and tell us how it should be done or what's in the way or what's not fun. So definitely that's a huge part of it. Many times they don't either have the ability or the or the willingness to, to share. So that's why you stand back and you observe. And it's all about observing what's happening and how we can how we can make it meet their need. Yes, you all do the like standard swing sets and posts and platform, but you know, I'm thinking about play cubes and Playform Seven. I just saw like the new like sky towers. So, what has been the driving force behind creating these more like I'll call them? I don't know what, how you think of them, but more like sculptural, less sort of like here's exactly how you play, like more open ended play elements. And those are personally the most exciting work, right? I guess you know you could say our market or or the business or the products are pretty traditional. Like a lot of uh, people who look for playground equipment and buy playground equipment and put it in the ground are remembering what they did or they're uh, nostalgic. And a lot of times like, well, it needs to have a slide. Well, you know, I think not everything does need to have a slide. Um, But so that's most of our customers. Of course, you have users who want to play anything, anywhere, on anything, any way they can. So mm-hmm. that's great when we have the chance to, I'll say, break out of the mold or think differently. And yeah, we call these play sculptures, but we really, you know, it's really about the play experience and and knowing what kids are, are seeking out to do. And then how can we give a structure or a, you know, a body or, or whatever you want to call it for kids to, to explore, or to express themselves or challenge themselves. Mm. Michael, before you joined us, I was talking to Sam about how inclusion has become a really important Uh, part of our design process. Can you talk a little bit about how that's impacted you guys? We have, well, first of all, we we work with a consultant who focuses her entire career and and is quite well-connected internationally, Mara Kaplan, and she's our inclusive consultant. So every product sort of goes through a review with her. So our team is very, tries to be as learned as we can about the issues and about what we can do to make things inclusive. And we look at that as I'm sure others do, you know, everything from all abilities, ages, various uh, ways of of understanding the world around us and how do we get a space that can bring everybody together like that and give everybody basically an enjoyable time and a time of growth and experimentation. So we're thinking about all the time as we as we look at it. And we actually like with Mark Kaplan, we have even different levels and she's very concerned about, hey, there's, there's some children who really need to 
have a climbing challenge. And because of their inner development, that's like, a you know, so you can't forget all these, you know, high levels of challenge, lower levels, high levels of challenge on a cognitive level, on an emotional level, on a social level. So let's make sure it's very layered. Let's make sure it's very diverse. I think part of inclusion, though, is to your point about making it compelling for a really broad range yeah. of people. Yeah. You want to take your whole family. Yeah in the time of COVID, your whole friend group, once we're through it, to a place and everyone is going to find something that resonates with them. If you design for very narrow cross-section, you are not creating an inclusive space. You know, I feel like that's something that as you talk about the layers of engagement, that's a super important part of consideration as as we look to create these really engaging built environments. Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious we heard a little bit about your design process towards the tail end of like having the physical mock-up and doing the play testing. I'd love to like rewind to the beginning, especially around these play, more like play sculptures. What's the design process around those? Like how are you and your team coming up with these, I mean, really beautiful, sometimes a little wild play elements? You know, we work very closely with sales and marketing and, you know, that's part of the, I'll say product development world. And, and it's, maybe not that different than working with a client or customer, but it could come in from there, right? And somebody comes with a challenge and says, you know, I would really love to have something that, you know, spins, twists and flips and whatever. And that's your inspiration or that's the problem you're trying to solve because somebody comes to you with a, a need out there. And then maybe the other channel is, yeah, as you might Many people might imagine you got some funky designers sitting around with straws and sticks and <laughs> gluing things together and and what if this and what if that? And really because I, I want to stress, like I mean, the, the designers we have, you know, have worked in this field for 12, 15, 20, 22, I think one of them maybe almost 30 years. And, you know, so there's not a whole lot of I'll say people out there who are thinking kids and structure. There's not a whole lot of people that are thinking kids in architecture or kids in space. Yeah, yeah. Right. To be honest, the kids are often forgotten. Mm -hmm. You know, so these people also are are sort of deeply ingrained in how kids unfold themselves or or you know what they need to develop. And so, you know, they may just invent something in I'll say a classic sort of creative kind of way. One of the things that I was curious about is as you are looking at play sculptures, play pieces and we as landscape architects are looking really at the site. I was saying mm -hmm. to Sam earlier, one of the times that we really find that it gets magical is when the site and the pieces really work together in a complementary, symbiotic way. And they mm -hmm. sort of both get elevated because of the setting and the piece. Do you have an example where you really felt like you worked with a landscape architect and together you created something that was just better than the sum of the parts? Yes, I do. And actually, Sherry, I was just going to ask you, what are landscape architects, you know, looking from us? And and I think you're touching on, you know, the ability to match the site or meet the site or integrate with the site. And traditionally, we're very, you know, my side of the, we're, so we sort of supply furniture, you might say, to your space, you could say, room, <laughs> right? And, and we're typically fairly... Um, inflexible and things are usually made very much to be on a flat surface and things like that. And so I think it's it's through partnership that we do something new and break those bounds sure. together. Right. So one example I think of, um, I guess it's in Ohio, actually, I'm trying to think, but it's called a Swan Creek Playground. And actually, my, my wife was with Playworld at the time. She's a landscape architect from Iran. Oh. And so she was the one who was kind of the 
point in between, right? So mm. we had some products, but we also made some custom products and there were a lot of there were a lot of hills and things mm. changed to be able to go up the hill, but also just in the planning and the conversation between the local architect and I'll say my wife being the play landscape architect of like how the routes, how the movement could work together and then the product, how are we going to make products that also fit that whole movement and usage of space and I think what we've found in our most successful relationships is the ability to understand the kit of parts that form really the basic infrastructure, and then to understand where are there moments that we can customize a little bit. So maybe the framework, the armature of the structure is the same, but then we get an extra long slide that mm -hmm. goes from one level to another. It wasn't what was specced, but because of the site, we're able to adjust that. That makes it feel super special to the site, right? And so those moments, it doesn't have to be 100% customized because that's not feasible, economic, right. manufacturing-wise, that, that's got challenges. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if there are ways that we can be creative, and I'll use Earthwork as an example, where we really find that if we can integrate people pieces into the grading and the mm -hmm. artwork of the site, people are like, did you have this made for this? It feels like <laughs> this has always been here. And that's a breakthrough moment. So let's let's talk COVID. We, we can't avoid it. Michael, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, is the pandemic having an impact on how you're designing playgrounds? I'm so curious, especially because playgrounds last a long time. <laughs> And so do you really want to change how they're designed for hopefully, I don't want to call this a blip, but it's a blip in the long, the long run. Anyway, curious your thoughts. My personal opinion is that, you know, the human, the humans are very resilient and are <laughs> resilient to go back to what we really are made for and enjoy and being in the here and now being together in the moment and in proximity and enjoy. You know, so I think we're not going to be stopped uh, in that. I think there's some products that are kind of popping up that maybe deal with this situation right now. My personal feeling is in some years, they'll kind of be already archaic or yeah. or seen as like, oh, those were products of that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so we're, there's, we're, parts, not really necessarily my group, but, you know, that deals with play, but there's yeah. parts that are parts of our organization are dabbling in that. And mm -hmm. uh, I think the, yeah, the play is, you know, it, it's following the children. I don't think the children right. and how they grow and <laughs> how they develop, you. <laughs> you know, it's going to change. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be the most elastic part of our entire, you know, of right. everything we know, the children are <laughs> going to bounce back. Right. Yeah. Good point. I love that. This one could be a question for both of you. Um, maybe we'll start with you, Michael. Beyond COVID, you know, what challenges and opportunities are there for improving the quality and access of play in your mind? That is another good thing I, I well, to think about. And I, I think this, I also don't know how long it'll last, but I, I feel like, and I, I'm sure, you know, Sherry can talk about it too, is like, it does seem to be a awakening or a reawakening of, of the the appreciation for the outdoor environment and what it actually gets us. And actually, you know, so we're kind of been forced to separate and go outside. I think many of us are hoping, yeah, this lasts everything from having more outside seating at restaurants and, you know, and rather than parked cars. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I love your example of more seating, outdoor seating for restaurants, right? Because when you think about public right of way or public open space, it is in theory dedicated for improvement of quality of life and the ability mm -hmm. to 
live. And I know parking is considered sacred by many because <laughs> there's this perception that unless you can pull right up and park in front of a store, you're not going to go there. But the reality is, especially in squares, little town areas and city centers, you could park three blocks away and walk to downtown and we turn back this space back into yeah. public use for mm -hmm. higher and better use. Um, I also feel like as we look to how play is evolving and how we as humans are evolving, I feel like we're getting a lot more agile and nimble in our ability to overcome challenges. So as we look forward, there will come a time when we're going to have supply chain issues with certain resources, right? Mm -hmm. Steel prices go up and all of a sudden that impacts play manufacturing or something else happens. Yeah, plastics. Plastics, sure. Yeah. So as designers, we need to be on the lookout for that and understand how that is going to impact our ability to create these accessible places. So if it's too expensive, it's not going to get built. If you can't repair it, if there aren't parts to replace it, it's not going to get built or it will get built and then it will fail and you won't be mm -hmm. able to use it. So And sure when you when you say that, it also made me think, you know, the right site, the right place because another thing, you put a playground in a place you know, a lot of times it's a leftover space here or there, then it never gets used. And everybody's saying, you know, why did we invest in this? It never gets used. So when you talk about the parking gone or the or the street being converted, those are places where play should be also integrated. So I'm, I'm totally. living out in Cal California. You know, we have a main street. It's never been a parking street. All the parking has been off the two parallel streets to the, you know, east and west. So it's been a super walking, super shops. Now suddenly, you know, people drove because it was interesting, but it wasn't like efficient to use the main street, right? But now it's many blocks of it are converted to, you know, clothing outdoors, seating outdoors, nail treatment outdoors. Wow. And you can imagine if you actually committed yourself, you could, you know, put some play right on the main street. No and, question. and that's next to where you're eating. That's next to where you're shopping and you get right. multi-use and then it's used. I also feel like as we think about play, it doesn't need to be this one consolidated area mm -hmm. in a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It can be more episodic, right? You can have mm -hmm. moments exactly. of play like the Chinatown installation. It's a moment of play that just you, you happen upon. This is yeah. not like a destination playground. And I think we need both, right? I think you need the bigger space that are going to have ball fields. But I also feel like play should be sprinkled liberally throughout our communities. Yeah, I love that. Definitely. And if we really took, you know, I'll say our, our smaller citizens seriously, you know, we would be, we would be supplying that a lot of places. And mm -hmm. I think it would make, you mentioned quality of life. Yeah. It would increase quality of life for our children. My last question for both of you, I'm curious if you have a dream Playscape project or like what your dream Playscape project would be. Mm. I feel like I'm a little bit inhibited, of course, because as a designer, right, with a professional license and liability yeah, insurance, yeah. <laughs> I can't necessarily separate the yeah, two. Yeah. However, it's all pits. It's, no, yeah, <laughs> I do feel like um, the adventure play, um, the advent of adventure play, the loose parts play, and also just being willing to let people of all ages take more risks. So big zip lines and ways that people can really move through a space. When I was in Germany last summer, we did a high ropes course, a clutter mm. fold mm. Um, thing. Mm. And now, of course, this is regulated and you're clipped in, but there were moments that I felt wildly free <laughs> and playful because I'm zip lining through the tops of trees. And I'm so like, cool. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
I would like more of that in my everyday life, yeah. right? Why yeah. couldn't we have that right down the street? Or So it's a little bit fantastical in these days, but I do think the idea of having more wild and free moments of play mm -hmm. should be better integrated and understand that, yes, as humans, we are going to take risks and we need to take ownership over those risks and it's going to have to be okay. I think yeah. that will lead to just more yeah. free will. I could second a lot of a lot of what Sherry's just said about, you know, the the loose parts or or the big movements. And I think it's, you know, it it's we're always trying to get to an interactive environment, you know, because a still sedate environment's never gonna be interesting. It's just gonna be, you know, it's not gonna be treated well. But and so you try to do that whatever level you can of how do we how do we actually engage people and have them interact with this world, whether it's through loose parts, there's I can't think, I guess it's up in, I can't remember if I was in Portland or Washington, but this fantastic kind of natural playground that had like some nice loose sticks and and you could move around and kind of make your own fort. And, mm -hmm. you know, kids were under there inventing their whole world, right? And that's one kind of interactivity that flying through the trees, which my daughter and I love to do every time we can, you know, is another way to interact with that environment and move through the environment in a very big way or spinning. But it can also just, you know, it can be sand, it can be water, it can be, but quality places to sort of be together. I'll sort of go back to that is, mm -hmm. is yeah, that can be just utilizing in many ways. Yeah. The community piece. Very yes. cool. Very cool. Thank you both. And, and thank you, Michael, for being here and sharing your expertise. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's been wonderful. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Listeners, be sure to check out Michael's and his team's work at Play Power. They own a number of great play brands, including Play World, and they have some really innovative play environments uh, and equipment. I love some of this stuff. Their website is playpower.com. Okay, now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll start us off. So Adobe recently launched a suite of AI-powered, that's artificial intelligence-powered features for Photoshop uh, that they're calling neural filters. And with these filters, you can adjust all sorts of images automatically. It's basically magic. You can change a person's age. You can change their facial expressions, oh. their hair can tweak backgrounds, adjust light sources. So like if the light was on the person's right side of their face, you can turn, turn it to be on the left side of their face. It is wild stuff. Adobe's chief product officer, Scott Belsky, recently demoed some of the features alongside Conan O'Brien. And I just love the video. So Adobe's VP of Digital Imaging told The Verge that we can now say that Photoshop is the most advanced AI application out there. Adobe generated the machine learning behind these neural filters by using generative adversarial networks or GANs for short. This is of like course. way over my head. But like, so take the skin smoothing filter, mm, for example. I need I guess that, the, actually. Yeah, same. I guess the way life. Adobe did it, right? So they collected thousands of before and after images made by professional photographers and they fed oh. that data into these algorithms and then um well i'll just so i copied the verge the author james vincent he explains it so the gans or gans operate like a paired student and teacher with one part trying to copy these examples while the other part tries to distinguish between the outputs and it trains the data and so eventually oh. when one side gets confused and can't tell the difference between 
the professionally edited by human and oh. the computer generated, then they've officially trained the machine. The training process is complete. Yeah, that's not scary at all. Yeah, so that is how you do machine learning. It's very cool, but yes, wow. This is all part of an update to Photoshop to version 22, which I can't believe I just said those words because <laughs> I remember using like Me version too. one. <laughs> it was early, early, yeah. early adapter. So now we're on 22. So check it out, start playing and exploring these AI powered neural filters. Okay. So anyway, you are up, Sherry. All right. Well, as technologically advanced and as much aspiration into the future as you just gave us, <laughs> I would like to take a 180 and talk pull it right about back. a baby toy. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so there's this company called Manhattan Toy. And they make beautiful things. They're just great designers. When I had my kids 15 years ago, I was in this mommy and me class. And I remember not knowing anything and being slightly terrified about this human that I was in charge of. And little by little, the human, now fully developed 15-year-old boy, Cooper, was starting to be able to hold things and play with things, but I was not prepared to be the <laughs> ambassador here when it comes to play. I'm like, uh... so there was this amazing toy back then called the Winkle. I know. I'm with you. I'm with you. I didn't name it, but it now has become very endeared to me. And a friend of mine recently had a baby um, who's now right at that age where you start grasping and playing with things. And so, of course, I was like, oh, my God, I got to look it up. Well, the Winkle lives on and oh is gosh. one of the most popular infant toys. So it is a square rattle in the middle, brightly colored. And then around it are these connected tubes of flexible plastic so if you just get your hand near it you can mm, grab it successfully yeah, nice. you can whack yourself in the face with it and it doesn't hurt <laughs> you can chew on it and it's sort of beautiful in its yeah. own artistic sculptural way and so parents are drawn to it and i just was like wow the staying power of this super simple rattle with these rubber tubes like how timeless it's timeless really and just such an amazing toy that it will live on with me. Well, now a, I have a one-year-old, and so now I'm going to have to get a Winkle. You <laughs> must get a Winkle. That's a great dose of design. Awesome. Thank you for sharing, and thanks for being here again. Yeah, You're awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really yeah. love this podcast. It's a lot of fun good. to do, and cool. uh, you guys do a good job. Okay, that's our show for today. Thank you again to Sherry Ruan and Michael Laris for being with us and helping us dream about play a bit. And thank you all for being here with us as well. We'll post links to some of the resources we discussed. That'll be on our episode page. Just visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And remember, get your tickets for the Workplace Innovation Summit. That's happening December 7th through 11th, virtually all online. So you can attend from anywhere in the world with an internet connection. Uh, you're gonna hear from uh, about all these changes that are happening in our new workplace normal. And I think a big question for many of us is, what has changed in this COVID period that's gonna continue even after the virus is behind us. So there's a lot of change. Some will stay with us, some will be let go. Uh, you'll hear about all these strategies from experts across design, HR, real estate, culture, and more. So grab your tickets at workplaceinnovationsummit.org. Chat with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at design underscore museum and on Instagram at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano. We're produced by Ryan Flom, and we're edited by Amanda Martinez. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at the Design Museum, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.